To start today's message, I want to ask you to think about how you got to be here today. And I don't mean think about whether you drove or whether you walked or how you got here exactly physically, but think about the journey of you ending up here at Brooklyn Park Church of Christ today in this moment. It's kind of staggering in some ways to think about all of the things that need to happen in our lives in order for us to end up where we are. The families that we're born into, the families that we grow up in, the places that we move to, the schools that we attend, the teachers that we had, other people who influenced us, things like kids and children, uh, kids and youth ministries that have had an impact on us, uh, things like we talked about with state youth games, camps that we went on, other peak experiences that we've had in our lives that have caused us to be in a place where we choose to follow Jesus. All of these experiences that we've had and the things that we've learned that end up bringing us to this place. For some of us, more recently, choosing to move into the western suburbs of Adelaide, for some of us, making that decision a very, very, very long time ago, choices to become a part of Brooklyn Park Church of Christ or choices to stay and be a part of Brooklyn Park Church of Christ. It's amazing to think about all of the decisions that have happened throughout our lives and all of the ways in which God has been at work that's necessary for us to get to this point today. And just like actually take a moment to think about that. In the silence, just think about all of the choices that have happened over your life that have meant that you've ended up sitting here this morning. It's kind of staggering when you stop and think about it. Today we're continuing our interrupted series where we're taking an opportunity to look at a number of different characters through scripture to be able to see how they respond to interruptions that happen in their lives and the ways in which we can apply that into our lives as we face different interruptions and times when things don't necessarily go according to plan. Last week we looked at Daniel and today we're looking at Esther and so as always inside of Caring Connection you have your teaching notes and so if it's helpful to jot some things down as we go through uh, that you can process more about through the week. I encourage you to do that. So a little bit of background on where we're up to. Last week, as I said, we talked about Daniel and we talked about uh, Daniel's story occurring during the exile where the Babylonians had come into Jerusalem and taken over Jerusalem and taken a bunch of people prisoner uh, back to Babylon. Well, the Babylonians didn't stay in power for super long because they then got taken over by a group called the Persians. And so when the Persians came into Babylon and took that over, some of the Jewish people went back to Jerusalem to try and rebuild things there, and others got taken to the capital of Persia, which was a place called Susa. And that's where we find... Esther's story unfolding. So this is around 470 BC and uh, it's a really amazing book in lots of ways, not the least of which is because it's the only book in the Bible where God is not named, which is a really staggering fact when you think about it and something's like, is that true? And if you look through, God is not actually named once throughout the whole book of Esther. But it is very, very clear that God's very much at work throughout this whole book. And so it's a really amazing story. Esther begins with King Xerxes, the king of Persia, throwing a party that goes for six months, which is one heck of a party. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I was just thinking about the logistics involved in running a, a six-month party. 
Just think about that. Day after day, week after week, month after month, six months worth of food and drink, apart from anything else, to be able to have a party that went on for that long. So Xerxes liked a bit of a party, and uh, he was having a very, very good time with all of his friends and other people who were gathered around. And as the six months drawed to a close, uh, he made a decision that he wanted to parade his queen around to everyone. And so he calls in the queen, Queen Vashti, so that uh, he can show her off to everyone who's been a part of this massive party. And Queen Vashti says, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. And uh, we could actually do a whole other message that's focused on Queen Vashti and her decision to uh, rightly say, no, I'm not going to stand and kind of parade around as your uh, prize queen, uh, but that's for another time. The king is not terribly happy about Vashti's decision in this, uh, not the least because if the queen is not willing to obey the king, there's some pretty serious implications about that in terms of everyone else obeying the king. And so he says the queen is sacked and it's time to go and find another queen. And so he holds this beauty pageant. Miss Persia 470 BC uh, and uh, throws this big pageant all of the single ladies, all the single ladies, are uh, invited, some of you get that reference, um, are invited along to be able to be a part of this beauty pageant where they have the opportunity to become the queen. And so Esther, being one of the single ladies, ends up becoming a part of this beauty pageant. Now Esther was someone who was Jewish and she was also an orphan. Uh, she'd been raised by her cousin Mordecai. Um, and in lots of ways was the least likely person to win this competition and to end up becoming queen. Just think about it. Someone from a completely different country, from a different nationality, a different culture, different spiritual set of beliefs, someone who didn't have parents who had raised her, the least likely person to win this competition. And yet we know that God has a very, very special place in his heart for those who are the least likely we see throughout scripture that God loves to take those who are the least likely and put them into positions where they can have a significant influence on others. And so sure enough, Esther ends up becoming the queen. So a bit later on, Mordecai, her cousin, hears about a plot to assassinate the king. And so he sends a message to Esther to let her know that so that she can tell the king about it. And so the king puts an end to that assassination attempt if you get my meaning. Uh, but Mordecai doesn't actually get any credit whatsoever for having tipped the king off about it. Things just move forward. And a little bit later on, we hear about this guy, Haman, who has become the second most powerful man in the whole kingdom, second only to the king. And this guy, Haman, had a little bit of an ego problem. His expectation whenever he walked around the streets was that people would bow down to him because he thought he was a pretty big deal and that everyone should recognise that he was Mr Big Deal. And so that was what he thought should happen. And one day he walks past Mordecai who says, actually, no, I'm not going to bow down to you because similar to Daniel from last week, he says, God is the only one who I bow down to. God's the only one who I worship. End of story. So, sorry, Haman, I'm not going to bow down to you. Well, Haman doesn't like this very much, and so he puts in place a plan to not just kill Haman, 
but to kill all of the Jewish people that represented uh, Mordecai and uh, his family. All of them, all of the women, all of the children, all of them were going to get killed. So he goes to the king and says, King, we need to put out a decree that we're going to kill all of the Jewish people. And they have a bit of a gambling competition to decide how long that's going to be before they do it. And it turns out it's going to be 13 months from that point. And so that's where we pick up the story today. Mordecai then goes and asks Esther to go to the king and to beg him to change the law, to say, this is not okay, we can't have this happen. All of the Jewish people wiped out. And so he says, go and try and do something about it. And so Esther replies and says, there's no way that she can just kind of walk up to the king and say, hey, king, you've got time for a bit of a chat. I'd love to talk about something. It's just not something that you did. Unless you were summoned by the king, you were not allowed to go and see him. And in actual fact, if you approached the king without being asked, then your life was probably at stake. And so Mordecai then sends her a reply to her saying, actually, that's not something that I really feel comfortable doing. And so he says in Esther 4, verses 13 and 14, don't imagine that you're safer than any other Jew just because you're in the royal palace. If you keep quiet at a time like this, help will come from heaven to the Jews and they'll be saved, but you will die and your father's family will come to an end. So Mordecai says, I believe that God is bigger than all of this and God's going to rescue the Jewish people one way or another. And if you choose not to be a part of that, then that might have some pretty dire consequences. But then he says one of the most profound verses that we read in scripture. Yet who knows? Maybe it was for a time like this that you were made queen. Maybe it was for such a time as this that you were made queen. So put yourself into Esther's shoes and think about how you would respond having just read Mordecai's letter to you. What would your decision be? You've got this massive responsibility weighing on your shoulders. Not just your life, but the life of Mordecai, this man who's been like a father figure to you and who's raised you and brought you up. But even more than that, all of the Jewish people, all of their lives, the responsibility of that is resting on your shoulders. But you also have the responsibility resting on your shoulders of being the queen. How can you go and openly defy the king? Not just approach him unsolicited, but to dare to say, actually, you need to change your mind on this. But then you stop and you think about the journey that you've been on. Not just your own personal journey, but the journey that your people have been on as well. Exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, now taken from Babylon through to Persia. You're an orphan. You've been raised by this amazing man Mordecai, and yet somehow you've ended up in this position where you're the queen of the kingdom. Could all of that just be a coincidence? Or is there maybe something significant that God's been doing through all of that? If you were Esther, how would you respond to the opportunity that's in front of you? We started today by thinking about how we got to be here. And there are times when I stop and think about the percentage chances of things happening, and it's absolutely mind-blowing. When you stop and actually think about the percentage chance of everything turning out the way that it is, it's really, really staggering. Just think about all of us who are gathered here today, our spiritual family here at Brooklyn Park. Some of us were born in the area, and so we've been here a really, really, really long time. 
Others of us maybe moved into the area when we were kids or we moved into the area when we got married to start a family. But all of us in that context had to be born in Australia and then in Adelaide and then to end up this, to make this choice to move into the western suburbs of Adelaide. Given all the places in Adelaide that we could have lived, we end up in the western suburbs and then choosing to become a part of this church or our parents bringing us along to this church. And some of our stories are really, really remarkable. Again, when we think about the percentage chance of all of this working out. Think particularly about Joe and Eleanor moving here from Fiji many, many years ago and standing a little bit lost on a street corner and bumping into Joyce, who helps them out. And from that, end up becoming a part of our church family. And now we're so pleased to have them and their three kids who are a part of our church family here. Ash and Susan moving here from India, all of the different places that they could have moved in the world, and they choose to move to Australia and to move to Adelaide and to move to the western suburbs of Adelaide and to do that at just the right time when their kids happen to be playgroup age and to happen to see that we run a playgroup here. And so to get involved in the playgroup and because of that to then become a part of our church family. I think about Tilo and Marlise moving here from South Africa. I know at one point Canada was on the radar for them. Partly the weather changed their mind and so they end up deciding they're going to move to Australia as well. But again, they move to Australia, they move to Adelaide, they end up in the western suburbs, they end up renting a flat in Mile End, end up finding our website and then becoming a part of our church family as well. Think back a little bit further to Ross and Beck moving to Adelaide from Melbourne many, many, many years ago, but then moving to, uh, to Aberfoyle Park, but then coming down the hill from Aberfoyle Park and ending up again in the western suburbs of Adelaide, and then through a series of different circumstances, ending up here at Brooklyn Park. For us as a family, those of you who've been around for a little while know our journey that we're in Canada on the other side of the world, and just as we're taking some time to pray and process about what our next steps are and to make the decision with Josh about to go into high school to say, are we supposed to stay in Canada long term or are we supposed to move back to Adelaide, move back to Australia? This role comes up. And so we end up here as a part of this church family as well. And there are lots and lots of other stories that we could share today as well. When you sew all of that together and think about the percentage chance of this being the group of people who happen to be sitting here right now, it's absolutely staggering. So is it all just a coincidence? Or could God have brought us together for a time like this? Well, returning back to the story, with incredible courage, Esther does make the decision that she's going to go and talk to the king. And so she sends a message to Mordecai to ask all of the Jewish community to take some time to fast and pray as she makes this really courageous decision. So she goes before the king, no doubt with a fair bit of trepidation, and the king says, oh, I'm really, really happy to see you. Remember, he hadn't seen her for a month. (laughs) It's probably like, oh, that's right, you're my queen. I remember now. Yes, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming and dropping by. What can I do for you? She doesn't really know what to say, and so she ends up saying, "Um, well, I was thinking uh, maybe uh, that I would cook you a really nice dinner. Would you like to come over, and I'll cook you a really, really nice meal? And Haman, you can come along as well, if you like. We'll have a really nice dinner party together. 
King thinks this is a really great idea, so does Haman, and so they have this really, really lovely dinner together. And at the end of the meal, the king says to her again, what can I do for you? And then staggeringly says, I'll do anything for you. I'll even give you half the kingdom. Just think about that, half the kingdom. So Esther's now in this position where she's being offered that. So she struggles a bit again, and she says, "Um, well, uh, let me think. Uh, Well, I I was actually thinking we should do this again. So let's have another dinner party. How about you come back tomorrow night and I'll cook you another meal. Does that sound good? And so the king and Haman say, yes, that sounds really, really great. But on Haman's way out from dinner that night, he happens to walk past Mordecai. And he remembers how angry he was about the fact that Mordecai wouldn't bow down before him. And so he orders that that night some gallows be built so that the very next day Mordecai can end up getting hung on the gallows. Well, that night the king can't sleep. And so he does what a lot of us do when we can't sleep. He goes to read something, although in those days he didn't quite have as many books. So he calls in the keeper of the court records. Sounds like a really great way to go to sleep, who then just talks through all of the things that have been going on over the last little while, just reading out incident after this person came and saw you, and then you did this, and then you ate this for dinner, all of those sorts of interesting things. But in the middle of all of that, the king is told about Mordecai being the one who tipped off about the assassination attempt. And so the king says, well, what did we do to thank this amazing man Mordecai who helped us out? And he finds out that they actually didn't do anything. And so he's really stunned by this. He's like, oh, that's not okay. We've got to do something about this. And so he calls Haman in. And he says to Haman, Haman, my number two guy, my really good friend, if I wanted to honour someone, you know, if I wanted to make a really big deal about someone because I really appreciate them and they've been doing some really good things for me, uh, if I really wanted to show someone just how grateful I am for them because they're really, really great, What do you think that I should do? Well, Haman, again, because of his ego problem, thinks that the king's talking about him. And so he says, well, uh, here's what I would do if I was going to honour someone who was so deserving of such accolades. I would suggest that you get your royal robes, perhaps, and put them on, because I think that would be really nice, and uh, maybe get the crown, the royal crown, and put that on their head as well. And, uh, well, you could your royal horse. Imagine if this person got to go through the city on the royal horse and be able to just trot around and everyone would see that this is someone who clearly you as the king thinks is really, really great. So the king says, Haman, brilliant ideas. I love it. That's really, really great. So can you go and do all of that for Mordecai? Isn't that beautiful? What an amazing twist. It's so awesome. So all of those things that you just said, go and find Mordecai, put the royal robes on him, put a crown on him, go and get my royal horse. And not only that, but you can lead Mordecai around. So you can just hold onto the horse, walk him around the city. That would be really, really amazing. You can just imagine the look that was on Haman's face when all of this unfolds. Obviously, because of all of that, it would be difficult for Haman to then hang Mordecai the next day, and so that doesn't happen. And so Esther ends up having the feast with the king and with Haman again. And at the end of the meal, the king says again to Esther, what would you like? What can I do for you? Again, I'll give you even half the kingdom, if you like. And Esther replies and says, all I ask is that my life and the life of my people is spared. That's all that I ask. 
The king's really confused and shocked. What do you mean that your life's at stake? Like, who would dare to try and kill the queen? That's a ridiculous thing. You can imagine at this point, Haman just kind of gently pushes away from the table, starts to slink away outside the room, and Esther points at him and says, that man there, Haman, he's the one who put all of this into motion. I'm one of these people who's Jewish, who you're going to kill in a few months. That's one of that's me, that's Mordecai as well. This man that you were going to honour, he's one of the others who's going to kill. He's going to get killed through all of this. And not only that, but Haman, just so you know, last night built a set of gallows to kill Mordecai before we even get to that point. The king is obviously not very impressed about all of this, and so he turns to Haman and he says, you know those gallows that you've built? Another beautiful twist. (laughs) Yep, well, you know where that's going. And so Esther and all of the Jewish people end up being saved. So as we come back to the theme of this series, this idea about how we respond when our lives are interrupted, just think again through Esther's journey and all of the interruptions that she faced. taken into exile in Persia, a country that was not her own, a culture that was not her own, raised by someone other than her parents, happily living with this man Mordecai who raised her and was a father figure to her and then suddenly dragged into this beauty contest that she probably didn't even want to be a part of. But out of that she becomes the queen with everything that comes with the responsibility of being the queen. You start to get your head around what that looks like and what your responsibilities are and what it means to be the queen. And then all of a sudden this plot kicks in to kill you and Mordecai and all of your people. Think about all of the interruptions. What's God up to through all of this? And so as we begin to wrap up our message and get ready to transition into communion, I want us to take some time to reflect on this question. How has God woven my story together? How has God woven my story together? Just think back over all of the experiences that you've had in your life, and not just the positive ones, but the negative ones as well. All of them shape us. All of them form us into the people that we are today. As I said, the the families that we grew up in shape us in really significant ways. The families that we currently have, the friends that we currently have, the people who we're closest to shape us. All of the different places that we've lived, the places where we went to school, if we went to uni or we went to college, those things shape us as well. The places where we've worked, the people that we've worked with, the people that we've worked for, And those of us who've been in positions where we've been in leadership over others, we then shape others around us as well. All of the experiences that we have, the holidays that we have, the places that we go and see, the cross-cultural experiences that we have, the ways in which we're shaped to see the world differently, the stories that we hear, the movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, all of those things shape us. And our gifts and our passions are all significantly shaped by those experiences. And then we make decisions to say, I'm really passionate about this, or I really love being involved in this, and so I get more involved in it, and then that continues to shape me even further. 
And as I said, not all of those experiences are positive experiences. Some of them are really, really hard, and some of them are really, really negative. Some of them are massive interruptions in our lives. Lots of points where our lives pivot and change and don't necessarily go according to plan. But maybe, just maybe, God's been at work through all of that, weaving all of that together to get us to the point where we are today, to this moment right now where we are. Maybe he's got us to where we are today for a time like this. And then collectively for us as well, we could ask the question this way, how has God woven our story together? Not just my individual story, but our story as a church family. The mix of different people who are a part of our church, the backgrounds that we've got, the gifts that we've got, this place that we're located, where God has put us, this facility, our new kitchen, our new toilet, the upgrades that are happening around the place. What's God up to as he weaves all of our stories together? Perhaps he's got us where we are for a time like this. So my encouragement to us this week is to take some time to reflect on that, to think back over our lives, and in particular just to think about some of the key moments that we really know have shaped us and helped us to become the people that we are. Some of those things that are really, really good, and it's going to be great to revisit them, and some of those memories that might be a little bit painful that have shaped us and caused us to be the people that we are. Take some time to reflect on that, but ultimately to be able to ask the question, how might God use all of that for a time like this? What's God been up to in your life to bring you to this moment right now? What might God be doing? And then take some time to think about us as a church family as well and to pray about where we're at as a church and to say, isn't it incredible that God has brought us, us and the other people who aren't able to be with us today, God's brought us together for a time like this, what could God be up to? What could God be doing? What are the opportunities that God's putting around us because of the unique way in which he's woven us together? I'm going to pray that we would be able to continue to be encouraged about the reality that God has never for a moment lost sight of us, that throughout our whole lives, in everything that we've been through, all of the experiences that we've had, God's been right there, shaping us, changing us, morphing us to become the people that we are for a time like this. Let's pray. God, this is one of those moments when we can recognise just how staggeringly enormous you are. The fact that you know every single one of us intimately that you know every single one of the experiences that all of us have had in our lives. All of us, you have brought to this point. You have woven our stories together. And while sometimes things have happened to us that aren't necessarily your best, we know that you've been able to take those things and been able to use them for your purposes to shape us into the people that you want us to be. We thank you for the stories that we read throughout Scripture where we see countless women and men whose lives are impacted because they're willing to get to that point of surrender, to say, God, you have been at work in my life, so here I am. Take me and use me. 
But the only thing that you want from us is for us to say, how do you want to take me and use me? I'm available, God. Use me for your purposes for a time like this. And so I pray for each of us that as we head into this week, you would encourage us, you would remind us that you've been at work, that you would be able to help us to see these beautiful tapestries that you've been weaving together in our lives to bring us to the point that we're at, and that that means you've set us up for some amazing opportunities that are in front of us in the weeks and months to come. And then for us collectively as a church family, I thank you that you have woven us together as well. Again, it's staggering to think about the percentage chance of this group of people sitting in this room at this moment. It's amazing. And so we trust that you have done that for a purpose. It's not just coincidence. It's not just random. You've brought us together because you have work for us to do for a time like this. So continue to help us to see what you're putting in front of us, the opportunities that you give us as a church family to impact not just each other's lives, but to look out into the community around us, the neighbourhoods, the people who we can serve, and to be able to recognise the opportunities we've got to help them see the ways in which you're at work in their lives too. In your name we pray. Amen.